I encourage you this evening, if you have a copy of the Word of God, to turn in the Scriptures to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. I sometimes wonder what would happen if we were like those apostles standing with the Lord and He's telling them to reach the world. And you know that there's nothing out there. So if you don't go, who does go? We sit here comfortably in the knowledge that there are missionaries sent out from churches all over this nation, all over other nations. They are being sent every year, every week, every month. You're always hearing about different ones going to the field and the labors that they're involved with. And it can actually insulate us from the need, make us feel like there's stuff going on out there. We don't have to be burdened. As I say, if we, if we felt the same as it was for the apostles... Go, reach the world, preach to every creature, then we might think to ourselves, well, <laughs> not so much should I go, but more, what excuse do I have to stay? Why should I not go? And may the Lord ever burden our hearts with a real sense of the needs that are around us. I do. It's often been a, a puzzlement to me. Uh, why I'm here in Greenville, in one sense. And I think I've intimated this on one or two occasions, but it was always my burden not to be in Northern Ireland because I felt there's so many churches here. Why, why should I be here in Northern Ireland? There's so much need. And having been to Australia, I thought maybe we, sh- we should go there. And then, of course, Canada. And it, uh, looking at Calgary and the city and its needs, I thought, well, there's a tremendous need here as well. It's nothing like Greenville. And yet, we're here, and I know I'm meant to be here, but as one of the bewilderments, because it was, never, it was never in the plan, it was never in our minds, we felt this need to, to go somewhere where Christ was little known. And the Lord has His ways of directing and leading us, and we submit to His will, but there's a great world out there that needs the gospel, and we need to feel the burden of it, both at home and abroad. So we are reading Luke chapter 9, we'll focus in on the opening six verses and give consideration to these verses. We will only look at verses 1 and 2 tonight, but let us read the opening six verses. Luke chapter 9 verse 1, then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor scrip, neither bread, neither money, neither of two coats apiece. And whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide, and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Amen. May the Lord bless His precious Word to us. Let's pray once again. Let's seek the Lord. Father, there are great needs. 
There are needs in our hearts tonight. There's no point in denying that. We need to be quickened. There are needs in hearts of those who watch on. Come, blessed Spirit, and do that work that is needed. And especially as it relates to the need of the world, God help us. Give us, give us eyes to see. Give us the burden. There are many part of this congregation, and they have labored faithfully. They have endeavored to instruct young people, young lives, to make a difference in their generation. And there is a need for a new generation to arise, to embrace a bigger vision of what may be done through Christ and what needs to be done for the honor of the Lord. And I pray that thou wilt begin to work. God, deliver me from the mere manipulation of men. I pray that thy word would be sufficient to move hearts, to bring lives to a point of surrender and to ask, as has been said of old, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. We want to hear from thee what thou wilt have us to do Come tonight and give much of thy spirit and the blessing that only comes from thy hand, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to remember as we come to the beginning of this chapter that the writer of this gospel, Luke, is giving an orderly account of the events of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has presented to us some details that others do not present You will remember in the opening three chapters, Luke essentially is giving unique detail on all that which surrounded the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and then the subsequent uh, ministry of John as well as his coming into the world also. But it's from chapter 4 where we are given details of his ministry. And we have spent now a considerable period of time going through Luke chapter 4 right through to the end of chapter 8 that give to us the the remarkable work and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there has been a particular emphasis upon the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see something of a transition. It won't be immediate. It's not clean cut. But we will see a transition as we move along in this gospel that Luke begins to shift. And we'll, we'll see some of that shift tonight, but there'll be a particular shift in terms of what he gives attention to. And by and by we'll become uh, inundated with parable after parable and teaching after teaching that will be the particular focus of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord is engaged in a ministry, one that is hemmed in with a very limited space of time. And he has been giving himself to ministry now for a period of a year and a half or thereabouts. And so as we come to Luke chapter 9, we are, we are entering a transition period, as I say, and, and the Lord has made a massive impact, a huge impact. We didn't read verse 7, but if you just look down to verse 7 of this chapter, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because that it was said of some that John was risen from the dead. So there's this knowledge that is spreading that isn't just among the common people, but even men in power are feeling the weight, the, the influence, the impact of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So tonight, as we look at the opening two verses of this chapter, I want us to consider it under the heading, the appointment of twelve ordinary men. The appointment of twelve ordinary men. And I want you to note with me, first of all, the appointment of twelve as an act of condemnation. The appointment of the twelve as an act of condemnation. You see from verse 1, then he called his 12 disciples together. That is to say, he summons 12 from the crowd. He summons them to convene around him. 
And this is where every call to ministry begins. It begins with a call from Christ to his side. You can't work for the Lord. You can't labor for the Lord. You can't do anything for the Lord if you haven't first heard something of a call to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. We may consider that in the experience of conversion. That's not the case here, but certainly it applies. There must be that coming to Christ in saving faith. There must be that experience of the Lord redeeming the life, saving the soul, washing away sins, and giving the assurance that we're right with God. But there also must be, in the service of the Lord, there must be a sense of God calling us to Himself, of Christ drawing us near to have fellowship with Him. There are those times, particularly, when the Lord is working in a life and intends them to do something specific, that He will actually deepen this sense of fellowship. And He will begin to work in their heart to the degree that they begin to feel like they don't want to continue on in the ordinary things, legitimate things, but they just don't want to be cumbered with these ordinary things of life. It's the early stirring of the heart, the sense that these things are wasting my time. I don't feel a burden to do these things. They're not sinful. They're not wrong. All your friends may be engaged in them, but you're beginning to feel this stir that that God wants you to do something else. He wants you to take, to go a little higher, to, to set aside those things that waste time and impinge upon a deeper fellowship with God. And if you've felt something of that, that may be the early signs that God is something for you. That God is working in your life in a particular degree that you, you, you look for opportunities to spend time in the Word, in prayer, and in fellowship with the Lord. This is what He does. He calls. He calls. He summons a, a, a select group. There's a huge crowd. There's the vast uh, swaths of humanity there. They're the great congregations of the church. But the Lord calls to Himself a, a peculiar number, a specific number, to get close to Him that they might be prepared for greater service. Well, this is what the Lord was doing, and I trust He's doing it here in this congregation and will yet do it in the years that come, that many of you will feel this weight, feel this call, begin to have done with lesser things, get alone with God, and God will be working in your heart long before you get clarity on the fact that He is calling me to the mission field or the ministry of some description. But what I want us to see here is, or consider the question when we, we read these words, then he called his 12 disciples together. Why 12? Why 12 disciples? I don't want to get too bogged down in this, but simply to lay out it so you have some idea of the reasons for this. It is symbolic. It's not haphazard. There's something significant behind his calling 12 specifically to be involved in a particular ministry known as the apostleship. You'll remember that there were 12 tribes of Israel. Those 12 tribes represented Israel. They were the, the, it was within that embodiment of those 12 tribes you had Israel of old. And so you could talk about Israel or you could talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. You could mention specific tribes you're part of Israel, but but you're aware of that, that distinction that the Lord gave among Israel and within Israel. Well, just as the 12 tribes represented Israel, Christ's appointment of the 12 apostles becomes a symbol of condemnation and judgment because it is indicating the replacement of how Israel is perceived. Prior, she was perceived as being, if you're part of this tribe, this is who Israel is. 
If you're found in this number, you're part of Israel. But Israel has apostatized. Israel has turned her back on the Lord. And as the Lord has conducted His ministry, there have been those occasions where He has been rejected, where He has been uh, cast aside. In fact, we'll get to that in just a moment because I'll show you that just preceding the call of the twelve, though it's not noted by Luke, He makes His way to Nazareth again. He goes there where He is once again rejected by those of His own, where, where He grew up. And again, he states, as he did at the beginning of his ministry, a prophet has, not, has no honor save in his own country that is not without honor save in his own country. And, and, and there's this, this sense in which the, the, he's being rejected, he's being turned aside, and we'll see that tonight a little more in just a moment. And so with the calling of the twelve, after that rejection of those in Nazareth, after this, this sense of people not believing who he is, he is calling them twelve who will ultimately replace how Israel is identified. This is a new representation of Israel in Christ and the twelve apostles, and it is a divine renunciation of the old establishment. It is one of the first indications, not the first, but one of the first indications that there's going out with the old and in with the new. Indeed, you might ask yourself the question, in an age of apostasy in Israel, such as at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and the days following, how would one discern that someone is part of the true Israel? How is it that anyone could be perceived as truly being part of Israel? And I can't take time tonight to turn to Romans chapter 9 and to show you that there's a distinction in terms of Israel. There are those that are Israel of the flesh. There are those that are Israel that are truly circumcised in heart. How do you discern the difference How is it perceived that one individual is actually part of the Israel of God and another is not? To sum it up for you is simply in this. How do they relate to the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Savior Himself? So when you go through the New Testament, you will find that Christ is is obviously the chief cornerstone of the church, but the apostles are pulled in to be part of the foundation of this new covenant era as well. They are, if you like, subordinate heads of the new covenant. And so Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 that they are built, the church is being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Another language indicates the elevated status of the apostles, such as what the Lord told them in Luke 22, verse 30, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging, judging, you are going to judge the twelve tribes of Israel. So you have this elevated status. And when we get to the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, verse 14, we're told of the the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And so the city depicting the church, the true church of the Lord, you have there in that city the the significance of the foundation being the names of the apostles. And what is significant about that, this is the point, what is significant about that is that by the appointment of the twelve comes this message of condemnation. It is a signification of judgment upon Israel. And the outgoing tribes and the incoming twelve apostles to reflect the fact that it's no longer, you're not discerned as being part of Israel if you can trace your lineage to one of the twelve tribes. It is whether or not you pay heed to the teaching of Christ and His apostles. And so what is the mark 
of those converted on the day of Pentecost that they gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine. They're listening to them. What's the significance of the apostles' doctrine? I mean, all the apostles are doing is opening up the Old Testament Scriptures. The Scriptures haven't changed. And those that are converted on the day of Pentecost, they're still dealing with the same word. Peter is pointing them back to Psalm 16 and other passages of Scripture. He's pointing them back to the same Scriptures. But what is the apostles' doctrine? The apostles' doctrine is distinct from the the rabbinical teaching of those who rejected the Messiah, and they open up the Old Testament Scriptures, and they show how these prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. And so if you reject that message, you're not part of Israel. If you accept that message, you're part of Israel. And so this is, there's this judgment, this condemnation that is implied by the fact that he called his 12 disciples together. Let us not miss the significance of that. But secondly, the appointment of the 12 as an act of continuity. The appointment of the 12 as an act of continuity. He called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. Note here continuity because this is a description of the work Christ was doing. There's continuity here because this is a description, what you have here in this text, of the work Christ was doing. This is Christ here. This is what he was doing. This is what the past year and a half has been. It has been an exhibition of power and authority over all devils and curing diseases. And Christ's ministry was not a political power. It was not an expression of financial power, economic power, but of spiritual power. Let me just refresh your minds of some of the things that Luke has pointed out to us, going right back to the beginning of his ministry. Luke chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. It's spiritual power that he has. Luke 4, verse 36, they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. Luke chapter 5, verse 15, Great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. The same chapter, verse 17, It came to pass on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Luke 6, verse 19, The whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him, and healed them all. So as I say, what we have here in verse 1, this power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases, has been, or is a description of what Christ has been doing. The past year and a half has been this display of power and authority over devils and over sickness. But also note, continuity, because this is a description of the work that was to be ongoing. This is a description of the work that was to be ongoing. He gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. This work must go on. Now, one of the things Jesus appears to have been continually pointing to through his ministry is the reality of his coming death. Turn for a moment to see this in John's Gospel, John chapter 2. Because John shows that Christ has been indicating this from the earliest stage of his ministry. And Luke doesn't do that. Luke hasn't given that same indication. He writes his gospel in such a way as to 
in the midst of the transition, as we'll see in just a moment, the kind of part where we're at now, he begins to point to the cross, begins to bring that into view. But Christ and his ministry had always been, in some way, pointing to this fact. John 2, verse 18. So this is after his first miracle. This is the beginning of his ministry. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the Scripture and the Word which Jesus had said. So, I'm just pointing that out to show that from the earliest part of his ministry, Christ has been pointing to the fact that there will be the death, his death and his resurrection. But this, this isn't really at the forefront. This isn't something that certainly Luke has given much time to so far in our own study of this gospel. In fact, the only one that I could find as I was going back and trying to see if there were references to this or similar to this uh, up to this point was in Luke chapter 5, verse 35. This was the only portion that gives indication of what is to come. Luke 5, verse 35, But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. Then shall they fast in those days. So, so there's, there's, a, there's a something of that. There's an indication he's going away. He'll not always be here. It's not in depth. It's not detailed. But there, that's the closest I could find in terms of Luke's narrative and explanation of the ministry of Christ that indicates this ongoing communication of the fact that I have to die and rise again. But my point is this, that the Lord begins to emphasize this more and more. It's at this point where the coming death of Christ gets pulled into view. Luke chapter 9, look at verse 18. Skip forward a little to where we're not quite at tonight, but Luke 9 verse 18, it came to pass as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him and he asked them saying, whom say the people that I am? The answering said, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. So as Luke tells the narrative, he is now beginning to put emphasis on this. He is going to impress upon the minds and hearts of his disciples the fact that he's going away, the fact that he's not always going to be there. There's going to be this departure very soon. Look at verse 31 of the same chapter, Luke 9, verse 31. And this is with his transfiguration. And even in there you can see, well, verse 30, Behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. There's more indication, more talk about the cross, more talk about his death. There's even a sense in which Christ now begins to speak as if he's running out of time. Go to verse 41 of Luke chapter 9. Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. So with this man, of, out of whom the, the disciples couldn't send out uh, the evil spirit, Christ gives this language. 
how long shall I be with you? It's, it's like he's impressing upon them the sense that his time is running out and his death is coming. This is further emphasized when you go to verse 51. Because it's at this point you really see Luke pointing out this transitional period in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Luke 9, 51, it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. So this is what he's pointing to. This is what he's saying is going to happen at this time as it looms and comes. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so it's as if, as Luke has given the, the, the details of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the entire time, by and large, he has kept the cross out of view. He hasn't brought that into the fore. And now it's as if we're kind of moving over the horizon and the cross is starting to rise up over the edge of the horizon and there's this indication of the looming death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that, of course, if you're reading this, and Luke now is bringing this up to this point, it's just been miracles and power and people healed and saved and and this transformative ministry of Jesus Christ, it just is swelling and swelling and swelling. Now, as, as Luke brings into view the fact he's going to die, the question in the reader's mind is this. What happens if he dies? What happens if this comes to pass? What happens if he's gone? Does this all come to nothing? Does it end? Does it fall flat? What happens? And so, as I say, we're coming to this transition, and part of it is the preparation of those who will continue the same work. He is not going to leave it so that this work doesn't go on, the preaching and even the healing ministry that he was engaged in. And so part of Luke's purpose as he brings the cross into view is also to highlight that Christ is preparing those who will carry on the work. When you get to chapter 10, you see that even more. Chapter 10 begins, After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also and sent them two and two before His face into every city and place whether He Himself would come. So there's, there's an increasing sense of urgency to, to gather men who will preach the Word, to send them into the villages and towns, and to make an impact before the cross comes to pass. Our Lord is going to multiply his influence by multiplying the workers. This is how he's going to reach the multitude for whom he will die. And he even illustrates it with one of his most famous miracles right here at this transitional period when we're told in Luke 9, verse 12 and following, of the feeding of the 5,000. And what is the significance of the feeding of the 5,000? It is the fact that Jesus, the bread of God sent down from heaven, is giving his life for the world. The indication, the significance is, therefore the world is going to be impacted by this. As the multitude are fed with this physical bread, it is showing the fact that as Christ, the bread of God, is offered for men, it will reach multitudes. It will go to the farthest corners of the globe. The disciples had spent over a year receiving from Christ, and now it is time for them to give. 
They are to enter into the continuity of the work, the work that must be ongoing, the work of having, of, of having power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases and to be sent to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. This is what they are being called to do. So the disciples, in one sense, are entering into an internship because he's not sending them away so that they will never come back again. Quite the contrary. He is sending them for a short period of time, and then they're going to come back. And what was remarkable, actually, it's, it's very interesting this, because he sends them out to see how they get on, and as we'll see, they all come back rejoicing at the power they have and all the events and experiences they've, they've had. But he continues to test them. We read that, that, that question that he put to them about uh, whom say ye that I am, verse 20. You know, what does, what does everyone else say I am? Who do you say that I am? He's still testing them. He's still preparing them. He's still drilling into their hearts the things that they need to grasp. So they're sent to work, but they have to report back, and he's going to continue to test them. And in this way, it's a good model to remember. Train, try, test before you trust. That's what you do. So it is with young men. And I would to God that God's work was carried out in this way. We train them up. We try them out. We give them a, a, a little more responsibility. Give them something to do. See how they, how they get on. Bring them back to test them. And then finally, finally, we are able to trust them and send them out to do the work. As I said some time ago there, that this event doesn't directly follow the miracles that we have in Luke chapter 8. Mark informs us that before he sends them out, they make a visit to Nazareth and Luke has detailed a visit at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4. The question is, will the response be different? And when you read Mark's gospel, you find out no. In fact, we're told, quote, they were offended at him. And Jesus declares again, if you read Mark 6, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country. And then it is recorded, verse 5 of Mark 6, he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And this is interesting because it's on the back of that disappointment that he sends them out to do the same work. It's coming from Nazareth that the Lord sends them to, to engage in this ministry that we have here in Luke chapter 9. So if you read Luke chapter 8, you see the, 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 the miracle of miracles, a young maid who's, who's been raised from the dead and the disciples are ready to perhaps be sent out and you get the impression they're going to go out there and yes, we... We can all do this. It's always going to go well. But the Lord actually, He actually brings them back down to earth. Oh, let's go to Nazareth. Let's just, let's just learn the fact that it doesn't always go this way. And they go to Nazareth and they see them again. And I can see the disciples going in there imagining, surely they will change their tune now. Surely they will receive Him. But they go back to Nazareth and again they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they're sent out with a sense of disappointment. They're sent out with a realization that not everyone believes, not everyone repents, not everyone turns, not everyone wants the message you have to offer. And so they're sent out. They're sent out in pairs. Mark 6 verse 7 tells us this. And these men sent out, when you read Luke Chapter 9, verse 1, he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. 
These are just ordinary men. They are not extraordinary. They are not mighty because there are not many mighty. There are not many noble. The vast majority engaged in kingdom work are ordinary people. So, you read these verses and how the Lord uses them. And ask yourself, am I ordinary? Should that limit what I do for the Lord? The Lord uses the ordinary. The vast majority are ordinary. And if you can say, I'm just an ordinary person, then you fit what the Lord usually uses for His glory. In the work of preparing men, as the Apostle Paul endeavors to do the same thing Jesus Christ does right here, that is, prepare those to continue the work. And as he exhorts Timothy in the importance of this work in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he says, "...the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses..." So the truths that you have received, the doctrine that I have imparted to you, all the compendium of truths that you have heard from me, the same commit thou to faithful men. Not mighty men, not noble men, not wealthy men, faithful men. Timothy, just find the faithful men. Be content with the faithful Find faithful men. And everything I've taught you and all that you've learned, commit to these faithful men. And the hope is, of course, who shall be able to teach others also. As I've said before, the intention of teaching is not simply to impart knowledge. The intention of teaching is to prepare that person so that they get up to speed and are able to be teachers themselves. If we simply teach and instruct to the limitation that they know what we know, and they have the knowledge, and that's it, but we haven't actually cultivated in them a desire to impart the truth, we've fallen short. And parents must get a hold of this. Parents must grasp I am not merely to bring my children to a point where they understand everything I know and they learn it and they've imbibed it. If I fail to bring them to a point where they also are able to teach, then I have failed. I have failed. This is why we ask questions of our children. This is why we get them to explain the things that we are dealing with. This is why we we pull out of them their their ability to say in their own words what it is that you're teaching. All the time when I'm reading the Scriptures with the children, I I will stop and say, what does that mean? Explain that to me. Because it's very easy. As you well know, you read the Bible and you kind of think you understand it. But as soon as someone says, explain that to me, all of a sudden you're, you're lost for words. You don't really know how to put it into language. You kind of think you've got the grasp of it, but you, you, you stumble over the ability to communicate the meaning. And this is why we have to take time. This is part of discipleship. It is bringing people to the point where they don't just know what we know, but they can communicate it. This is where the disciples are being tested. Will they be able to communicate everything they have heard the Lord teach? 
will they be able to take the same gospel, call men to repentance, and make a difference just as he had? Because this continuity is essential. The appointment of the twelve as an act of continuity, there must be continuity. There must be the ongoing work of the kingdom. And he gives them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. Then note, thirdly, the appointment of the twelve as an act of compassion. The appointment of the twelve as an act of compassion. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Matthew's record of our passage is preceded with the words of Matthew chapter 9. Turn there for a moment, because I think it's important again to see some of the details that Luke does not record for us, and to get a hold of them, what's leading into this event. So Matthew chapter 9, reading from verse 35. So you'll see, if you look down to chapter 10, you can see this is the same event. He's calling unto him his 12 disciples. So preceding this, verse 35 of chapter 9, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So he's going about the work. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing. This is what he's been doing for a year and a half. He continues doing it. He's, he's running around tirelessly, going to all the cities and the villages, doing the work that he's been doing for 18 months. And then we read verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And it's as if the sense of the impossibility of the work is coming upon the heart of the Lord as he sees the perishing multitudes, the extensive needs of the multitudes, and while he tirelessly runs around from city to city, village to village, spreading the news, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, there are multitudes still in need. And he's moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. They have no guidance. There aren't enough. There are not enough men to guide. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. He is calling his disciples to look. See it. See it. Can you not see what I see? Night and day I'm preaching. Night and day I'm traveling. Night and day I'm preaching and teaching and healing. I'm giving myself to this. And there are multitudes still in need. I can't do this myself. One man can't carry on this work. Look, look upon them. Feel the compassion that I feel. See their fainting hearts. See their great needs. See their, their lack of spiritual guidance. See the harvest. And pray the Lord will send forth the laborers. There's a need for more laborers. There's a need for more men. There's need for more heralds, more who will go with this particular focus of, of working to bring the Word of God. 
And so it's at that point, it's with the sense of compassion. It's with his heart going out to the need and the impossibility of reaching them all as one man that he then calls his disciples together. He takes the twelve One of the things to learn about the proximity of the prey for the laborers and then the laborers being appointed, one of the things to learn is that often those who hear the call to pray for laborers become the answer to the prayer. There are many Christians who never hear the burden of the lack of laborers. They never feel it. So they don't pray. They'll pray for more laborers. As long as they have a pastor, that they're happy. As long as their needs are met in some way. And they can come to church and someone will study for hours to consider the word and then come and explain and expound it to them for the benefit of their hearts. As long as they have that, that's, that's fine. But the Lord looked and with compassion saw a multitude without, without guidance, a sheep without a shepherd. It says pray. And the men most likely to pray, at least most of them, actually become an answer to their own prayer. See, you can't say, raise up the labors. Unless you're also prepared to say, if it be thy will, Lord, here am I, send me. Back to Luke 9, verse 2, we are told, and he sent. The verb there for sent is apostello. You can hear in that the word apostle. It's a verb form of the noun. And you can see the very significance then of the apostleship. The apostleship is an indication of men sent. Not men who are self-appointed, men sent. And there's always a logic to the sending. There's always a logic to it. It's not someone saying that in some faint way, some imaginary way, some way that can never be verified, God is sending me. It's always verifiable. You can always go back to the person who sent, who did the sending. In this case, you could go to Christ. Christ sent them. And when you come into the New Testament, you realize that the men who carry on the work are men sent. And you can go back and say, who sent them? Well, this church sent them, as you find in Acts chapter 13. They're referred to as apostles because they were sent with a special commission. This is a particular office. Not everyone's an apostle those who call themselves apostles today do disjustice, an injustice rather, to the very title. Ephesians 4.11 indicates this. He gives some apostles. There is this certain office called the apostle. And the distinction of their office is marked by their work. You can see it here. They have this authority, this power that he gives to them. I don't know how he gives it. I don't know how this is transferred. I don't know if he lays hands on them 
or he prays over them, or what he does. I have no idea what he does. All I know is that in some way he gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases, and he sent them. And they're sent to this particular work. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 10, verse 7 and 8, you can see what work they're engaged in. As you go preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely you have received, freely give. <laughs> it's there where we have to draw the line. For if a man is going to call himself an apostle, and this is part of the evidence that he has this particular office conferred upon him by the Lord, he will also raise the dead. He will raise the dead. There are many that claim to be apostles today. Not one of them can verify that they've actually raised someone from the dead. Now you hear all sorts of stories, but none of them are ever verifiable. You never prove it. There's no evidence of it. And of course, the, the, the question is, why is it always in some obscure place where you can never really determine it actually happened? Why is there never anyone around who could actually say, yes, absolutely, this person was clinically dead, and now they're alive. Those people aren't there. Why don't they go and walk through the ICUs of the hospitals where people are dying all the time and say, hey, I'm here. Anyone died? I'm here to raise them up again. It never happens. It's always in manipulated scenarios, always in circumstances they can control. This was a particular gift that was given to these men for the continuity of the work that Jesus Christ had been involved with and all that he had been doing throughout his ministry. But I want to, to see a couple of things here in this, the appointment of the twelve is an act of compassion. First, that preaching is an act of compassion. Preaching is an act of compassion. Verse 2, he sent them to preach the kingdom of God. At this time, according to Matthew 10, verse 6, this is exclusively to the Jew, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's your calling. Focus on them. The word preach is herald. Herald the kingdom of God. The word indicates a distinction from sharing the gospel. It has a sense of formality, a sense of gravity, a sense of authority. It's the very thing I'm doing right now. And it's not the same as the, as the communication of the gospel that you might engage in in your day-to-day -day business and interactions with men. Turn for a moment to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. You'll see this. This is the most clear passage to see the distinction between the business of every Christian and the particular work of those called to be a herald. Acts chapter 8. And here we are brought into Samaria because of the persecution that's going on at Jerusalem. And so... Let's read from verse 3, just for context. context. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and healing men and women committed them to prison. Therefore, because of the persecution, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. This is everyone. Those scattered, the regular men and women, families, they went everywhere preaching the word. And the word here has the idea of gossip. It's connected with the evangel or euangelion, the sense of, of gossiping, sharing, talking about the Word. So wherever they went, they talked about what they believed. That's the sense. Verse 5, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached. This is a different word. He heralded. You can see it in the English. They are preaching the Word, verse 4, 
Philip preached Christ unto them, while it is the same in the English, the Greek, the original, is communicating a completely different activity. The people are spreading, they're talking about the Lord, sharing what they believe. Philip goes down and he heralds it. It's in this official capacity as he enters into the marketplace and before the people and he heralds the gospel plainly to them. Verse 6, the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake. This happens so often. Very, very, very seldom is it that someone hears a message, the gospel preached, and they have never actually had someone talk to them or explain it from their own personal perspective. Nearly everyone is introduced for the first time to Christ by someone who knows them, who then says, I'm a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, this is what it means to be a Christian. Or you talk about your testimony. I, was, I had this kind of life, I was brought up in this kind of way, and here are the events of a certain time in my life, and I, I was talked to, and someone preached to me, and witnessed to me, and I repented of my sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you tell your personal story. You communicate, either through personal testimony or plainly endeavoring to just explain, basically, what it is you believe. And they hear that. And the vast majority of people who come to faith have had that experience, and the vast majority of those who are sitting in a meeting like this all of a sudden have their eyes open. It is preceded with that communication from someone they know and someone that cares about them, whether a loved one or someone that they work with or a neighbor, and they've had that relationship, that communication, then the herald gets up and they, it clicks at that point and they turn to Christ. And that's what happens right here. The Christians infiltrate the community and they're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's beginning to impact the Samaritans. They, they can hear, they're, they're learning of, of this and they're getting more acquainted. And they say, you know, we've, we've heard something about this. There was, there was a lady one time that uh, actually spoke to Jesus at a well and she got a whole people converted to this. And, you know, you can imagine some of the discussion going on and it, it raises this 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 inquiry in the mind. And then Philip goes and he begins to herald and they begin to pay attention because the herald, the herald often does what we don't do to the same degree in personal relationships. He calls them to a response. He's not just telling them about Jesus Christ. He stands before men and says, repent and believe the gospel. Do it now. Do it now before you perish. Do it now before you die. With the urgency of the information, they turn to Christ and they're saved. Well, this is, this is the most compassionate thing that can go on. This is the most compassionate thing that God can do for a community. It's to send people who will talk about the Lord and heralds who will preach the Word. What the Lord is doing here for the lost sheep of the house of Israel is an act of mercy. Sending them to preach the kingdom of God is the most compassionate thing he can do. To hear the word. But not only preaching as an act of compassion, but healing as an act of compassion, because they went also to heal the sick. The purpose of healing and all the other signs that are detailed when you bring the Gospels together is to authenticate the apostolic ministry that they have received. 
which in turn would confirm the truth of the gospel message from their lips. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, he helps the Corinthians to remember what it was that happened in their presence. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Corinth was graced with apostolic ministry. Truly, the signs of an apostle, not just the preaching of ordinary preachers, but the signs of an apostle. And the Lord is doing the same here for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He is putting before them the signs of an apostle. Powerful miracles designed to get their attention, capture their hearts, and make them listen to the truth. It served a number of purposes. The sign ministries, the miracles that were done by the hands of these men. Just a number of thoughts. First of all, it demonstrated the power of God, evidently. There's no denying this. There's the power of God on display. God is in this. This is what Nicodemus understood, isn't it? When the Jewish religious leaders are trying to relate to the early ministry of Jesus Christ, what's going on here? And they're trying to diminish and they're trying to downplay who Jesus is and what he's doing. And Nicodemus comes. <laughs> we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man doeth these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now the other religious leaders wouldn't acknowledge it. But Nicodemus comes in the, in the, 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 the cloak of night to communicate what's actually going on behind closed doors. You can't deny that God is with this man. And so it was for the apostles. It demonstrated the power of God. Also, it confirmed the call of God. Christ had called them. Christ had given them this ministry. And this is con confirmation. He has put upon them this particular responsibility to be apostles, sent, commissioned by the Son of God Himself. And they go. And as they work, no man can deny the call because of the measure of power that they display. It also underlined the mercy of God. They are there to heal. They're bringing miracles to the fore that show the mercy of God. If God was in the business of destroying Jerusalem, wanting to eradicate them all at this point in time, He would be showing more of His anger and wrath. Instead, He's showing indications of mercy. And while they reject and reject and reject and reject and ultimately will crucify Him on the cross at Calvary, the miracles, the healing miracles were a sign an extension of mercy. I'm being merciful. How oft would I have gathered thee as a hen gather her, gathers her chickens and you would not. And I put the display before you, the, the healing miracles. I, I showed you I'm here to heal. I'm here to redeem. Fourthly, illustrated the gospel of God. So many of the healings would indicate what the gospel's all about. When the blind would receive their sight, it's indicating that the reception of the gospel is to have eyes to see the truth. When the lepers are cleansed, it's to show the power of the gospel to make the vilest clean. When the lame are in power to walk in a way that perhaps they've never done or haven't done in years, is an indication that they can have a walk with God. This is the power of the gospel. And also it foreshadowed the future kingdom of God. 
The healing ministry of Christ indicated there's coming a day where there will be no more pain and suffering. Christ has power to end death and suffering in all of its forms. And this is all being communicated. This is all being pushed before the eyes of Israel. Now let me underline, this is an unusual season. This is not what happens all of the time. You don't have these miracles going on all the time. Sometimes people say, the Bible's full of miracles. Why don't we see miracles today? Well, the Bible actually isn't really full of miracles. I mean, not in the sense that you're trying to communicate. It's like all in the past there were always these miracles. But, but just be a little more selective in your reading. And you will see that the miracles took place in three particular periods of time. You have Moses and you have Joshua. Great miracles are done, no denying it. But prior to Moses, were miracles going on? No. After Joshua, were miracles happening all the time? No. Then you come to Elijah and Elisha. Again, a period of miracles. Things are happening that don't normally happen. But prior to that, after that, it's just normal life. Prophets and priests declaring the message, calling people to take heed to the word. There's nothing extraordinary going on. It's just the communication of truth and the call to repent and believe. And then you have Jesus and the apostles. Again, a period of extraordinary activity and miracles but we don't have miracles happening all the time. This isn't the ordinary way. And the Lord made this plain. Those who seek for signs, no sign will be given to them. Except, of course, for the Jew, the sign of the prophet Jonah. That is, he would rise from the dead exactly as he said. So they'll get that sign. But people who seek for signs end up as those who will look forever for that which God has no intention to send. Of course, there's no stronger evidence of this and even the Lord's view of miracles and their power or their, the limitations of their power than what we'll come to eventually in Luke chapter 16. When we have the rich man and Lazarus and they both die and the rich man finds himself in hell, Lazarus is in the Abraham's bosom and the rich man is concerned about, about his five brothers and he says, Father Abraham, showing that he's a Jew. <laughs> he was, oh, he was in the synagogue all the time. Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my five brothers, lest they come to this place of torment. And he's told it can't be done. In fact, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Nay! Nay, 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 nay. That won't do, Father Abraham. If one rises from the dead, then they'll believe. If they believe not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. The miracles are not what we are called to believe in. We are called to believe the truth communicated. And the miracles are indications, they're messages 
They communicate something. They have their purposes. I've sought to outline to you tonight. But the vast majority of human history, the kingdom of God is extended. The work of the Lord is done by the communication of the truth. God can show no greater compassion to this world than raising up heralds of the gospel. And there is a tremendous need. I hope that you here tonight and others who hear this message will begin to feel the weight, the weight of a world perishing and hundreds of people groups, hundreds of languages still without the gospel. And the greatest compassion is to go to hear the call. So I wonder where are the Isaiahs? Where are those? Where are those? And I, I feel this has been the case. We've gone through four years where much of the church, you know, this is. I remarked on this to someone recently. I used to, I don't do it anymore, but I, you know, I'd travel around and I would, hey Siri, NPR news headlines or Fox News headlines, and you know, they begin to narrate to you the headlines. You know, when I began to do that, it, and I've stopped now, <laughs> enough is enough. But when I began to do that, it struck me every single time, almost every single day, and the news changes hour by hour, they update this all the time. Trump, da 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 da. Trump, da 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 da. Every single, the commencement of all news began Trump. And I've, I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about the fact that, not that I'm drawing any correlation between the character of Uzziah and the character of Donald Trump, but just the fact that a man can take people's attention. And it was in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. So when this distraction was taken out of my view that I got my eyes on the one that matters. And then he said, here am I, send me. That king that I thought would be the the hero of the country, God's taken him away. Now I see the king of kings. And he calls ordinary men to go and preach. We are to respond. Here am I. Send me. May the Lord give us grace. Let's bow together in prayer. If you're here tonight and you are not, you're not a Christian, then you're the very person that needs, needs the gospel. You can't go and share it. You can't change people's lives. As it stands, no one will ever be able to say that you pointed them to Christ. You led them to the Lord. Because your life 
It doesn't show forth the gospel. Your lips never share the message of Christ. You're lost. You can't go to the mission field because you are the mission field. You need the Lord. And if that is you tonight and you need help, be sure to talk to me. I'll be glad to open the word of God and pray with you. Lord, we pray that thou wilt graciously help us to hear what we need to hear. If the call is to stay at home and preach Christ in our neighborhood, then let us hear that call and let us do it to the best of our ability. And if the call is going to demand that we leave all, we leave our jobs, our careers, and we head off into some other place that's strange to us, then God, we ask that we will always be willing that we would hear that call. Bless thy word. Dear God, use this message to raise up preachers and missionaries of the cross, whether here in this congregation or farther afield. Receive our thanks. How merciful thou art. May our eyes, may our gaze be filled with Christ this week. May that make a difference in how we live and how we speak of thee. Be with us as we go home. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.